Welcome to NatSec Tech, a podcast from the Special Competitive Studies Project. I'm Jean Meserve. We have talked a lot in previous episodes about the tech competition between the U.S. and China, but often from the U.S. perspective. Today, we're going to get a different view. With us, Bernard Lyon. He is an angel investor with a focus on Web3 and AI, and with degrees in physics and material science, he has made contributions in the world of AI and machine learning. And he's a podcaster himself, founding and hosting the Analyze Asia podcast. Bernard, great to have you with us. Jin, thank you for having me here. It's early morning in Singapore. Uh, And late afternoon in the US, I might add. Uh, but we both have had our dose of caffeine, I think. Um, the world is still totally obsessed with generative AI. Were you surprised that it was an American company, OpenAI, that released the first advanced model? I was not surprised that the American companies were the first to release the most advanced um, large language models. Um, I think OpenAI jumpstarted the AI wave with ChatGPT in November 2022. I think the perspective I have is that actually I did have this belief that Google already have the generative pre-trained transformers. And actually it was during the episode when there was an AI ethics researcher that claimed that AI is quotation sentient. But I think what happened was we also observed when the journalists in the US have tried to push the boundaries of ChatGPT and made it seem that the AI looks sentient, which is not really true. I think ultimately there are different ways of looking at the ChatGPT models because they can be either like a stochastic parrots or they exhibit some form of emergent properties that they sound like human due to the training of large language models with huge data or maybe something that we haven't understood yet. I think um, as for AI breaking the Turing test of being sentient, my opinion that we are still very, very far away. But I think that it is a big milestone. It is like the iPhone or the electricity moment as some put it because um, it has actually able to allow us to do much more than just uh, the basic um, trying to predict what you're going to say in the next sentence. It's actually able to allow you to be able to do summary of work. It can actually also help you to do things uh, like um, helping you to write your first drafts. I don't think it's able to replace any form of human labor yet, but it also be able to help you to organize and um and allows people to use AI to do things faster, like producing your own images or producing your own videos at some point. Were you surprised that China hasn't released more in terms of large language models? The answer is yes. Um, And I think why I was surprised was um, they made, the Chinese have made a lot of advances in the recent years. And I have actually, uh, in my own podcast, Analyze Asia, I've interviewed uh, many who are either working within the industry in the tech industry in China and um, talking to um, the scientists there. I think one of the things that they have done, and I will talk some about some of their uh, recent uh, advances that they made right before the 2020 pre-COVID era, where we have we have much more visibility into China. Um, that you see TikTok, for example, I think. There is an ongoing discussion on whether they should be banned or not in the US because I'm pretty, uh, I, I'm also observing what is currently happening in the US with regards to TikTok. They have a very, very powerful recommendation engine. I think a lot of people in the US would not know that uh, TikTok also 
sells their recommendation engine as an enterprise solution uh, in the emerging markets. And, and that is, and that particular recommendation engine is done using machine learning as such. And there was, and that's the reason why people talk about addiction to social media as such. I think you also think about Ali, Alibaba, um, who have their own cloud computing, uh, solutions similar to the Amazon web services, uh, which I formerly worked in. Um, they are cloud computing developments are actually getting very, very advanced, uh, close and hence, I think that there should be, they should have been taught thinking about doing something like a large language model. And of course, Baidu, uh, which is the equivalent of Google search with autonomous vehicles and also a few com uh, computer vision companies, which some of them are currently sanctions under the US, uh, like under US sanctions. What I was surprised was, was that they did not develop the LLMs because I think you probably have read a book. Uh, there was a very well-known book by Lee Kai-Fu from um, Sanovation Ventures that made the huge prediction. Uh, it's called AI Superpowers, where they say that China will eventually supersede uh, the US in artificial intelligence. I think, to be fair to uh, Kai-Fu Lee, I think uh, what he's alluding to was because China has uh, three times the population to the US and they have been leapfrogged the US in terms of moving from the personal computer straight to the mobile era. And they have very, very huge uh, data sets captured, which give them really a prime position in training the AI models. Uh, and But the bulk of actually the AI scientists which are doing that are actually in the US. So I think that is also something that I think people overestimated what the Chinese could do. And when I was talking to various people asking them, why did not China, Chinese tech didn't release uh, ChatGPT? I think one of the things that they were thinking about was that I think they were thinking of doing the transformer models, but they did not know whether what kind of outcome it would. I think when you do in machine learning, the use cases tend to be very, very specific, like a recommendation engine is something that you want to personalize the approach of how you look at a video or look at um, your activity feed in Facebook to try to contextualize that. So I think that is also some, uh, some reason that maybe they weren't so clear if they allocate so much resources because training an LLM is not cheap, even, even today. So they may think, uh, they may be thinking about being frugal with their resources and also with the Chinese regulatory uh, crackdown in the last few years, somehow it has also impact, impeded their advances as well. Do you have any doubt that China will catch up? I think they will catch up. I think the, I think the question is the general uh, large language models or LMs we call them, are going to become commodities. I think the dominant ones are not necessary, whether it's a US or Chinese LLM. I don't think in terms of um, whether it's, uh, it's led by country, but I think what will eventually dominate will be the open source ones, which are out to compete with the closed models that are currently owned by OpenAI, uh, Google, Baidu. And those open source ones, which I'm talking about are like, uh, Lama 2, which um, has been launched by Meta, or formerly known as Facebook, or Hugging Faces, they'll provide an alternative against the large tech incumbents. I think um, 
the the source code is there. Okay, everybody knows how to uh, create the algorithm um, because the transformer paper it, uh, that was done uh, it'll be very nice title. Attention is all you need. Um, was uh, is out there. The only thing that um, for anyone out there who's going to train their LLM, uh, what they need to figure out is what are the correct ways to train. Um, how what the, what kind of data are you going to use to train it? Um, because LLM performs very similarly to what um, what the data is trained on sometimes. So we have to just be aware of that. And I think that um, enterprises are not going to just sit by and use OpenAI's uh, um, ChatGPT as it stands. Let me, let me give you a very good uh, perspective from enterprises, okay, from companies out there. And uh, Samsung actually banned the use of ChatGPT. Uh, it was actually uh, known in Asia Pacific. And the reason is because someone has actually put in their sensitive data into the ChatGPT and actually went into the system. So what has been changing in the last couple of months is that we're seeing a lot more um, like Microsoft have their own version of OpenAI. And even ChatGPT has now have an enterprise version that comes with a specific kind of um, certification called the SOC2 certification, which is to assure enterprises that if you use the, your own data into ChatGPT, we will not use it for training. Um, and of course, everybody forgot that is that the, the pre-trained um, GPT is generative pre-trained transformers. So the data is actually trained back in data in 2021. And a lot of it is fine-tuning of the model itself. Yeah. The U.S. and its allies have placed restrictions on the sale of advanced semiconductors and semiconductor mm. technology to China. Is that having an impact on this rate to race towards better and better large language models? Mm, I think the answer is yes. Um, I, I would first think about, the way I would think about it is that if you look at the entire semiconductor supply chain, from the design architecture all the way to fabrication, you need to have the you need to have the um, extreme ultraviolet uh, lithography or EUV machines from ASML, which is in the Netherlands or Holland, in short. Um, the ARM chip reference architecture from the UK, uh, which they have just uh, gone public again, and the fabrication capability of TSMC, meaning getting better use of the semiconductor for chips that are of a certain nanometers, are three, nanometer, three to five nanometers, and this is what is called the cutting edge. And what currently the US sanction do is actually to stop China from getting the cutting edge uh, semiconductor chips. If China wants to build their own semiconductors, because this is actually a choke point for them, even for the machine learning, as I alluded to, they cannot really do it on their own because it will take them a lot of time. You have to replicate an entire supply chain that was developed for the last 40 years. Yeah. But but Huawei recently released a phone, I think it's called the Mate 60 Pro, that appears to That's contain right. sophisticated chip technology. Yeah. Is that a sign they found a way around these restrictions? So that is a still a question to be determined. Um, I, I think what you're referring to was uh, Huawei's recent, um, the 5G smartphone that was built with what's called the Kirin 9000 processor, which is a seven nanometer chip, okay? is designed by uh, Huawei's design arm, high silicon 
and it's made by their top foundry, uh, uh, Semiconductor Manufacturing International Corp, or SMIC in short, which is also currently uh, under US sanctions. What we know, okay, this is from public sources, uh, South China Morning Post, is that the there's a handset teardown analysis by Tech Insights, a semiconductor intelligence firm. Um, what we re- uh, what they found was that uh, they is there's actually they built a seven nanometer chip, okay, and if that's the tr- if that's true, okay, they are probably about five years behind the best out there, okay. How did they do it? We do not know, but there is there are some nuances here. So even if you can manufacture a seven nanometer chip, okay, the question is. How good will your U rates are for your chip fabrication? Can you mass fabricate this, like what TSMC is doing with the expertise? So the assumption or what is uh, viewed as the common wisdom across in the semiconductor space is that um, the problem is not making how many nanometer chip, is can you manufacture that chip in large quantities? So one thing I will start to look out is how much of these handsets are being sold. Because that will also give you some idea how fast it is. If you if you start uh, reading the tea leaves and say you know, the Huawei Mate has been launched but it hasn't been released yet, and then you know sales has been you know high demand but not enough supply, it also could also be that manufacturing this is not that easy on that. So I think that is something that people do not think about on in terms on the semiconductor side as well. Um, I think you have to watch, but it was a surprise. I think you just have to think about how they could have actually developed this, but I think it's still some time before they catch up eventually with the United States. Do you think it's true, though, that the effect of the restrictions on the part of the U.S. and its allies has kickstarted Chinese development of advanced chips? Definitely. Um, I think they have already started right before that. Um, because there was the uh, Made in 2025 initiative in the past, uh, even be, uh, just, bef- just before the uh, Trump administration. So I think it was part of that, uh, because I think where the Chinese wanted to go in terms of manufacturing, um, they have decided that manufacturing is a core expertise. So they followed the roadmap that was very similar to what the Germans have done. Um, there's a very, very different way of uh, that goes from very basic manufacturing to high precision manufacturing, which the U.S. hasn't gone into. Maybe for specific industries, uh, I would say that the U.S. is also have certain manufacturing capabilities, but for very, very specific industries there. But I think where the Ch- Chinese have started with the main 2025 was to be self-reliant. And that actually kickstarted a lot of these um the, the I wouldn't call it trade war, but the, the escalating tensions that's been ongoing since the Trump administration and now be spilled over into the Biden administration as well. There mm. are some other tech battlegrounds, and I'd like to get your sense of the state of competition uh, between mm. the U.S. and China uh, when it comes to, for instance, quantum computing. Who's got mm. the edge? Wow. <laughs> it's a very, very difficult question. The Chinese have made breakthroughs in 5G uh, communications and in quantum computing. Um, They've done some very important experiments uh, relating quantum entanglement, um, satellite actual experiments. 
um, and also energy to some extent with battery tech. Okay, I think the largest, uh, uh, despite what we want to do with electric vehicles, the largest manufacturing um, uh, company with that is BYD. So uh, specific coming back to quantum computing, right? I think if they were to continue their development and quantum computing is what I call a big step change. It's like a leapfrog to what existing AI or other technologies do. They would have a very good big, uh, good shot in surpassing the US in terms of that. But that doesn't mean that the US is standing still. I think um, Google and I think even IBM in the US are already building uh, compu quantum computers that have certain quantum supremacy, right? I think it's a very, very open play. But what it really breaks apart is that a lot um, the meaning of when quantum computing actually happens means a few things. One is the standard ways of encryption that we're using today in the internet are going to be broken uh, because it's, a, it's a, a very advanced form of uh, programming. But of course, other than the, the users of just uh, cracking codes, there are other users for quantum computing. It could be that it can be shrink down as small as to computing on the watch, right? It could be have other applications as well. There are also other areas I think uh, Chinese, the Chinese have actually been slower and much more surprised than I thought. And one of them is in the invention of CRISPR. Um, so in biology, yes, that's right. Biology, um, when, when I was working in the Human Genome Project as a research scientist, um, we were talking about, um, we only have what is called, a, in computer science, we call it the read and write language. That means we could read and we can do some gene editing. But now, now what, what happens with CRISPR is that you have the edit function. So you could actually have a lot more, you can actually uh, do a lot more than what previously um, uh, uh, biology could do for med medicine as such. And that's going to spur a lot more changes in the space. So I think to me, the only part that is going to be challenging for the US, I think it still lies in the advanced manufacturing and the other one will be robotics. So uh, whatever software it is, I think this still has to be accompanied uh, with the hardware. And I alluded to earlier that the Chinese have actually, um, is now the largest manufacturing uh, giant in the world and following the roadmap of the Japanese and the, and the Germans and not of the US. And hence, what I would see is that unless you, the US will have two choices. One is that they will rely on the emerging markets to produce and manufacturing, or they will have to be forced to reshore again uh, to develop their own capability to do so, like what they did with the CHIPS Act. Um, and, but it's going to be expensive moving forward. Talk to me for a little bit about Web3. What mm. is it and what could it be used for? Wow. Okay. If I were to answer that, it would probably take me a podcast, but how much time do I have? <laughs> give, give me the Cliff Notes version, the short and snappy version. Okay. So um, Web3, the way I would think about it is that um, it is basically, uh, some people call it uh, crypto. Uh, and basically is a new paradigm. So in the standard Web2 paradigm, which we now live in, um, a lot of the uh, internet platforms are centralized. 
So in the Web3, um, there are actually uh, three parts. So there is a part that the platforms must be decentralized. So you could actually, um, the second is actually is peer-to-peer, all right? Similar to what BitTorrent is. But I think the one most important piece is that there has to be demand and supply, scarcity. Um, so the, a lot of the, or Chris Dixon, who's very well known of coining the term Web3 from Anderson Horowitz, say that the original sin of the internet was that um, all the internet platforms ended up relying on advertising models. So Web3 is a, 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 a new um, internet, internet uh, 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 paradigm where you, uh, whatever you do on the internet, or if you want to do a transaction on the internet, you actually can do it through via uh, native, uh, uh, natives we call tokens. And that creates the demand and supply. So imagine today uh, you go to Twitter, a Web3 version of Twitter is that whenever you post, you pay some fee to the platform itself, and that's their business model, correct? But, but the good thing is, spammers won't be able to do that for free anymore because they have to pay a lot in order to post on the internet. Um, so it's actually uh, something that came out with the emergence of Bitcoin, but uh, Bitcoin has uh, is only one of the different, it's, it's the first Web3 uh, finance product, but after that, there is things like Ether, where they focus on a lot of other applications, uh, applications such as non-fungible tokens, NFTs, they call it, or decentralized finance. I think this is where it is. And currently the rest of the world is uh, very welcoming of Web3 and crypto and except for the US itself, which is currently having a lot of uh, troubles between the regulators and the crypto uh, industry players. Which leads me to my next question. This sounds like it would be uh, very difficult to regulate. Mm. I mean, we're having a hard enough time with with Web 2.0. Yeah, that's right. So uh, the current regulations is between the uh, SEC and the current main players, for example, Coinbase, Gemini. And I think one of the central debates is whether um, the crypto assets, for example, Bitcoin and Ether, are they securities or commodities? Okay. And one of the the biggest challenge is whether uh, who should regulate them? Right? Is it the CFTC and SEC? Um, but here's here lies the dilemma, right? I think um, by just not allowing the the uh, crypto web three industry to flourish within the US, the US is actually um, losing its talent to the rest of the world, which is actually opening their arms to uh, crypto and web three. Um, but I think the 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 important part is actually to make sure. Uh, to protect the retail um, investors. I think that's very important. I think it's very, very important to set regulation in the boundaries. I think um, there's this comment that no, Asia is well, Asia Pacific or even UK or Dubai is welcoming crypto uh, or Web3 in open arms. They are setting what I call realistic regulation to how they should regulate things like stable coins, um, how to tackle against uh, KYC and money not laundering. I think it's just something that the US, um, the legislators and the SEC has to come around and try to see how they will want to regulate an industry. Otherwise, you're, yeah, otherwise you're going to lose some of your innovation out to the rest of the world. 
Well, you know there were a lot of doubters. There were people who call it a myth, a fairy story. Web3 yeah, is just a, a scam as well. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. What's your response to them? I think in any emerging technology, um, be it, you know, if I were to, given that I like history, you know, in the days of the, in the railroads, you know, there's also grifters and scammers, you know, as well. So every emerging technology typically comes with a very high degree of speculation happening in that era. And whether it's Web3 or crypto, Web2 or even Web1, there are grifters and speculators as such. The very unfortunate part is that the design of the Web3 internet platform is that the speculators are a feature and not a bug. Because the moment you release a token, it goes into an exchange. It becomes something that is becomes tradable. And anything becomes a, fin- a form of financial speculation becomes a problem. That is where you perpetuate a lot of these uh, things that are that are illegal. People doing selling illegal securities that are not against the law. I think, which is where um, regulation typically takes a longer time to catch up. I think they are getting faster these days. Uh, I, I looked at the some healthy signs in the US, like you are starting to think about what to do for about AI. I think to me that is actually far more important. Um, I think. Web3 will have its own cause of um, getting there. And I think that the most imperative piece on that piece of technology is the stablecoin legislation now. Yeah. I want to take it back to the big picture of the tensions between Washington and Beijing. We have seen some high-level exchanges recently. Do you think there's the possibility that there may be some sort of common ground found on some of the key tech issues or not? As a neutral bystander and having friends from in China and also in the US and also observing the China and the US relations, my first point of view is I do not want the countries to be in conflict. Okay. It doesn't help anyone that caught in a crossfire. But I think there are common issues which the China and the US can work together on. I think things like climate change. Um, this is something very specific because um, China in terms of technology is trying to go green, right? And they are also to also nudge the emerging markets, right? To be able to adopt, um, to go towards the net zero emissions uh, goal, um, whether it's 2030s, 2050s or 2060s, but at least there's a direction on there. And I think they can also be much more helpful in terms of um, together, work together in terms of things like disaster recovery and ending the war in Ukraine. Um, I think the efforts of actually de-escalating the current tensions between the US and China will be a good start. Um, I think it's going to take some time. Um, they, they will need to first establish trust again um, because it, the, the relationship has, gone, has been uh, ongoing very, very long and it's, it suddenly went on a very sharp turn. So I think it would be best for the US and China to find some common ground on. I think technology sharing is also another. We're not talking about military technology sharing. We're talking about very, very basic civilian sharing. Maybe there may be, um, uh, there may be vaccines that can help, you know, uh, both China and U.S. citizens or maybe some, some very, very basic things like, you know, environmental protection stuff. 
So I think this is something that I think um, I, I, I would expect that both sides can start collaborating on and then slowly get back into the, to maybe what I call um, uh, cooperation within between economies and also, um, and that will trickle down to the emerging markets uh, where I lived in. And we, of course, hope to see that both nations are actually at peace rather than at this current juncture of tensions that's ongoing. And we will wrap things up on that optimistic note. Bernard Lyon, thanks so much for joining us. He is an angel investor with a focus on Web3 and AI. He's also founder and host of the Analyze Asia podcast. I'm Jean Meserve, and this has been Natsec Tech, a podcast from the Special Competitive Studies Project. I hope you'll join us again.